Section 4. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westcarth. Section 4. The Beach, now Port Melbourne. Thinking of the days that are no more. Tennyson. At the time of my arrival, all Melbourne-bound passengers were put out by their respective ships' boats upon that part of the northern beach of Port Phillip that was nearest to Melbourne whence, in straggling lines, as they best could in hot winds, they trod a bush track of their own making, which, about a mile and a half long, brought them to a punt or little boat just above the falls, where the owner made a good living at threepence ahead for the half-minute's passage. This debarkation place got to be called par excellence, the beach, it consisted already of two public houses, kept respectively by Lyadette and Lingham. Both were respectable people in their way, but the first was also a character. Of good family connection he had enjoyed a life of endless adventure, which, however, had never seemed any more to elevate him by fortune than to depress him by its reverse. He was a kind of roving Garibaldi, minus, indeed, the hero's war-paint and the Italian unity, but with all his frankness an indomitable resource. Having a family of active young sons, he secured the boating of the beach, as well as the other thing. But his untold riches of experience seemed never to condescend to develop into riches of mere money, and perhaps without one pang of regret to his versatile and resourceful mind. This beach was a sterile spot, afterwards fittingly called Sandridge, and presented so little inducement to occupancy that these two public houses were the whole of it till well on to the days of gold. Then the beach awoke to its destinies. When the Melbourne and Hobson's Bay Railway was projected in 1852, there were already a good few houses, mostly wooden, straggling along either side of the original bush track. Then arose the respectable suburb of Sandridge, to be finally superseded by the municipality of Port Melbourne, which, with its mayor and corporation, can now enter the London market with its own loan issues. The only other indigenous feature of this somewhat featureless beach which I recollect was the little virulently salt lagoon, situated in complete isolation near the bay, and only some hundred yards on the right-hand side of the track to Melbourne. We all knew it was there, but it had extremely few visitors, owing to its unapproachable surrounding of bushes and its bad repute from a countless guard of huge and ferocious mosquitoes. Without outlet for its extra briny waters, 
and in its desolate solitude it might have aspired to be a sort of tiny dead sea. With the advance of Sandridge this evil-omened southern Avernus came in for better consideration, and by 1854, with the cutting into the bay, it had become a ready-made boat haven. The Melbourne maps now show me that it must have reached still higher destinies. Early Melbourne, its ups and downs, 1840-51. to 51. Will fortune never come with both hands full? Second part, Henry the Fourth. The weakest go to the wall, Romeo and Juliet. But it's better to scheme than to slumber. J. Brunton Stevens, Queensland. Sweet are the uses of adversity, as you like it. When Faulkner, in August 1835, following Batman's example of the previous May, organised and sent forth his party from Launceston to explore and colonise Port Phillip. His instruction was that they should squat down for a home only where there was adequate fresh water. When, in their cruising about to that end, the party entered the Yarra at the bay's head, ascended its roundabout course, and found ample water to drink above the falls. They had once disembarked there, and there, in consequence, arose Melbourne. Faulkner, following in October, confirmed the choice, and with its characteristic energy commenced the work of colonisation. The immediate needs decide many things, for better, for worse. A good many have since thought, that this has been a costly and inconvenient site for the colony's capital, and that, that of Williamstown, with its healthful level, like New York, might have been better, and still better than either Geelong, with its beautiful ready-made harbour, its immediate background of rich soil, and its direct access to all the superior capabilities of the west and north-west. But there Melbourne is, and in spite of all obstacles, it is already the prominent city of the southern hemisphere, and Faulkner is justly its father. When Melbourne's father died, now a good many years ago, and with not a few of the admitted honours and merits of a long, laborious and useful life, I sent authority to friends there to subscribe for me to the inevitable monument but my offered money was never demanded, and therefore I fear that the living busy tide of such a host of sons has crowded out the memory of the dead parent. A vision of earliest Melbourne rises before me. Allotment speculators were bound, within moderate time, to construct a dwelling on their purchase, and in some cases these were made with honest intention as in the two adjacent half-acres of Mr. James Smith and Mr. Skin Craig in West Collins Street. But in most cases these coerced structures were only shams, which disappeared right early. The only buildings on a good many sections that are now central and almost priceless were post and rail fences, 
somewhat dilapidated at places by our license of jumping over them for a short diagonal to adjacent streets. Let me try to recall the Melbourne of 1840, as it looked in that year, the year of my arrival. In the first place I must protest against the meagre view given some years ago in the illustrated London News, from a sketch by Mossman, an early colonist of my acquaintance, and copied into the lively and pleasant volume of my esteemed friend, Miss Isabella Bird, now Mrs. Bishop. It may be true as far as it goes, but it is only the Western Market Square, which had hardly one-thirtieth part of that year's Melbourne. At the close of 1840, there were between three and four thousand of population, although perhaps one-fourth of these, who had been recently shot out of emigrant ships, were merely waiting for employment or settlement. The whole district had about nine thousand. Curiously enough, Melbourne, including suburbs, has always had about one-third of the total colonial population, while Sydney and Adelaide, respectively, had been much the same. But this naturally comes of a vast interior behind, which was practically only the one outlet. In New Zealand, on the other hand, the long strip of land, with the sea near to every part, calls into being a number of small capitals. The latter are the immediate facilities, but, in the other case, the ultimate creation of a surpassingly great city, with all its powerful concentration of resource, seems on the whole the more promising for a country's advance in all the interest of human life. The latest returns for the end of last year 1887, give 392,000 people to Melbourne, in a total for the colony of 133,000. Taking Central Collins Street, which was then, and I suppose is still, the chief seat of business, and beginning with the Shakespeare at the market corner, where originally Faulkner opened the first public house, and proceeding eastwards to Swanson Street, there was a good sprinkling of brick-built offices, stores and shops, including Kerr and Holmes, in stationery, Drummond's Grocery, Wooden, Turnbull, Ore & Co., Forsyth's Druggery, The Imperial Inn, Pitman, Dinwoody's Saddlery, Townend's Corner, Wooden, George James Wine Office and House, and the ill-fortuned Port Phillip Bank. Returning by the other side were Hood Chemist, Cashmore Draper, Carson Shoemaker, J. M. Chisholm and the Benjamins, Soft Goods, the hardware shop of William Whitten, a leading Wesleyan, this Wesleyan church, and the Bank of Australasia, which towered up Prince of the Small Squad. To the far east, on the south side, was our worthy Dr. Howard's good house and garden. On the other side were some few small brick dwellings. One was occupied by Deputy Assistant Commissary General Erskine. 
In another was Dr. Hobson, whose untimely death was an early grief to our small society, unable to spare such lives. He was the friend and correspondent of Professor Owen, and supplied the Prince of Science with curious data of the strange and then but scantily known Australian fauna, from the platypus at the head of modern wonders, back to the earliest marsupialdom of the fossil world. The Reverend Alexander Morrison's independent church and adjacent manse came next. The Scots church, lower down, of which the Reverend James Forbes was minister, was then being built. Not till the next year was the creditably large mechanics institute begun. A good story is told of it, characteristic of the earlier flourish of the times. Mr. P. W. Welsh, then the leading merchant, had offered to subscribe so largely that the committee took offence at such vain presumption and limited subscriptions to more modest sums. Returning to the marketplace and taking its eastern side was a small nest of early merchants, E. M. Sayers, whose stores my firm bought eight years later. Watson and White were brothers, whose senior, the well-known Mr. Jonathan Binns were, was always, under all fortunes, a prominent and influential merchant and citizen. W. and H. Barnes and Co., and perhaps one or two more. But as the buildings are not given in Mossman's sketch, they probably belong to the end of the year, or possibly tied over into 1841. Towards the foot of the market slope, the first custom house was being built, and of that dismal dark brown indurated sandstone, of which other places, St. James Church, the old jail, etc., were also built, because it was so near at hand. Sweeping now round to the west side, we come to the good store and residence belonging to J. F. Strachan, of Geelong, and managed by F. Noden, who was quite a character of the time, with its bustling form and face ever full of business, whether business were full or not. He would always accept his bills in red ink, and, as the joke goes, the bills being good, the Noden Manor was supposed to help even the non-Noden bills through at the Australasia. At the corner opposite the Shakespeare was the Melbourne Auction Company, where I first met my most worthy old friend, George Sinclair Brodie, so well known for ten years after as the leading Melbourne auctioneer, or rather broker, for that is nearer the home equivalent. He was the salesman, while a genial and amusing good fellow. John Carey, from Guernsey, was manager. The company had just paid 20% dividend, the first as well as the last in that way. In the jolly days up to that time, every buyer got credit, and there was plenty of business, but when the times changed, the credit bills were not met, and so the poor M.A.C., which had, as usual, guaranteed them, 
got cleaned out. Down Collins Street once more, we pass the primitive wooden cottage residence of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, whose family of fine daughters were already all married, Mrs. D.S. Campbell, Mrs. R. Russell, Mrs. Martin, Mrs. Hutton, excepting the youngest, then a schoolgirl, afterwards married to Nantes of Geelong, D.S. Campbell's partner. Then came Craig and Broadfoot stores, and Allison and Knight's flour mills. At the end was pretty green Batman's Hill, which has since been remorselessly sacrificed for the great railway terminus. Batman's original wooden house on the southern slope was, after his early death, occupied as the government offices by Mr. Latrobe, and this homely tenement did such high duties for no small subsequent term. Down hereabout was also a conspicuous line of five little wooden cottages, called Roach Terrace, after Captain Roach, another very early colonist, which were each let at five pounds a week, although they would not have brought half that money by the year at home. Returning on the other side was St. James Church, in charge of the Reverend Mr. Thompson, of most sociable memory, within its ample open area, and, further on, the notorious Lamb Inn. For the rest of Melbourne of 1840, I must be content with one general sketch. Manton's mills had risen at the lower end of the wharf, such as it then was. Flinders Street had as yet but little in it. James Jackson, afterwards Jackson, Ray and Company, was already there. About the middle was the cottage of P. W. Welsh, prior to his removing to South Yarra, and there, as the story goes again, Mrs. Welsh gave her five hundred pound party, but having unfortunately omitted Arden, the editor of the Gazette, in the invitations, he was left free to denounce so bad an example of extravagance. Burke Street had an incongruous grouping, including the well-known Kirk's Bazaar, and the superb cottage, for its time, of Mr. Carrington, the solicitor, and in Little Burke Street was Mr. Condor's brewery. At the far east end was Mr. Porter's good cottage, and further on, Mr. Latrobe's Bijou residence, in its pretty grounds, which, although only of wood and of the smallest dimensions, he stuck to until his final leave in 1854. The lanes, or Little Flinders and Collins Streets, were already fairly filled, as the land there was much cheaper. In the former were Heap and Grice's offices, and the Adelphi Hotel, approaching the Lamb Inn in noisy repute. The latter had Bells and Buchanan, the post office under D. Kelsch, and where Elizabeth Street crossed, G. Lovell and Company and Campbell and Woolley. The Catholic Church in Lonsdale Street was under construction, and on the western brow was Mr. Abraham's good house with his two pretty girl children, one of whom was in succession 
Mrs. Pike, Mrs. Gray, and Mrs. Williams, and is still alive with a creditable total of family. Beyond was the trackless bush, excepting the bush tracks to Sydney, and in the Flemington and Keelor direction. But outside the town were already several suburbs, of which Collingwood was the largest, having the residences of John Hunter Patterson and other leading early colonists. I used to traverse not a few dreary empty allotments in the hot summer sun to reach the stores of my friend the Honourable James Graham, whose dwelling and business place in Russell, by Burke Street, seemed then quite far out of the village, but is since in the very heart of the great city. The course of values in the colony, early and late, is well illustrated by this example. The allotment originally belonged to our friend in common, S. A. Donaldson, of Sydney, who had bought for some nominal price at the government sale in 1837. He bought many other lots thereabout, and towards Collingwood, further east and north, and after the gold discoveries, he told me pathetically, oftener than once, that his impatience to sell had lost him the status and happiness, whatever the latter might be, of a millionaire. Donaldson had let this place, with its house, stores, etc., good as these things went then, to Graham at five hundred pounds a year. This was about 1838 to 9, when everything in business ways was rolling jollily upwards. But some few years afterwards, the landlord's attorneys, William Ryrie and myself, had to reduce the rent to either one hundred or fifty pounds, I think the latter. Some years later, Graham purchased at two thousand pounds, and it is understood has lately resolved at something approaching a quarter of a million. As these matters are all locally so well known, I feel that, as with wills at Doctors' Commons, I tread upon no toes in such useful illustrations. I arrived just to witness the last glories of the famous champagne lunches, which prefaced the auction sales of these early days, and repeatedly I saw in his element Charles Williams, the earliest of his trade. If such lunches cost forty pounds, which was given me as a moderate average, who suffered, argued their justifiers, if the exhilaration they produced gave four hundred pounds more to the net proceeds. The brisk liquor appreciably blew up the prices, as the same lots, cut up and rearranged, would come again and yet again under the hammer. Many a bullock drover would pull up on passing the auction room or tent, and quaff off half a bottle to the good health of all concerned in such liberality. One respectable old colonist was said to have almost lived on those lunches in the dear early times, so regularly did he encourage and patronise them. The bidding public were regaled before the sale, but the auctioneer and his clients after, a plan which made very much 
the better business, as might have been seen by the effects in either case. Williams begun with £4,000 a year profits, which I dare say went on to the rate of £10,000 for the brief term. He was just finishing what, for those times, was a fine villa on the Yarra Bank, beyond Richmond, when the rapidly receding tide left him, as well as many others stranded. Great gum tree stumps were grievously prevalent, alike in Melbourne streets and allotments. Swanson Street was special in this way, and they long flourished upon allotments about where the city hall at first stood. One huge stump, just touching the Collins Street line, where the Criterion Hotel was afterwards built, long held defiant existence, the wooden building of the time having deviated to go round it. When at length the lot came to be sold by Mr. James Purvis, a well-known early allotment monger, whom I recollect on this occasion descanting on the future prospects of so central a site, the buyer had the too long-endured enemy attacked and extirpated. End of section 4